0: Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick, in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. China's crackdown, gaming stocks plunge as Beijing summons tech leaders. Debt dilemma, Janet Yellen warns of irreparable damage if the US Congress doesn't raise the debt limit. And Laser Guidance, the CEO of self-driving firm Luminar on their anti-collision technology. It's Thursday, let's make a move. have you with us. We are watching US stock futures and they are mixed after fresh data came in on jobless claims. 310,000 Americans applied for first-time unemployment benefits last week. That's a new pandemic low and below the estimate of 335,000. The data suggests the labor market is holding up despite the surging Delta variant. In Europe, stocks are trading mixed as the European Central Bank decides to slow down the pace of bond purchases under its pandemic emergency program. But the ECB leaves its key interest rates unchanged. In Asia, the Hang Seng fell 2.3 percent as shares of Chinese video game giants plummeted. Authorities summoned Tencent and NetEase to demand they play down profits. Japan's Nikkei and South Korea's Kospi also closing lower today. Okay, let's get straight to the drivers. Gaming stocks in China plunging Thursday after industry leaders were summoned to speak to regulators. The firms were told to lessen their focus on profit and to modify any element of the games that could be seen as addictive. Stephen Chang joins me live now. Stephen, you know, when I heard this, I thought, wait a minute. You know, focusing on profit is at the heart of what companies do. Do you have any sense from these firms that they're able to actually carry out these demands?
1: You know, Allison, you hit the nail on the coffin here because uh, the things uh, the companies were told are almost the very reason for their existence. You know, pursuing profits and attracting players. And fans, But of course, this is Xi Jinping's China we are talking about. And tumbling stock prices may be the least of these companies' worries. Because remember, just in the past few weeks, we have seen this flurry of policies and regulations being applied to a growing number of industries and sometimes uh, destroying an entire sector almost overnight. uh, With recent examples, such as the private after-school tutoring industry and before that, the crypto uh, mining sector. So for these companies, we mentioned this meeting uh, was attracting a lot of attention because it came on the heels of the last week's uh, sudden announcement by the authorities to limit playtime for minors basically to uh, uh, just an hour on Fridays, weekends and public holidays only. Now that that rule of course that rule changed the stated goal was to uh, combat gaming addiction i think that's something that's that's been resonating with many parents not only here but also around the world but it's the way the issue here is the way the authorities have been doing this now in this meeting basically as you said they uh, the, the authorities were telling the companies how to run their businesses and also uh, uh, to further clamp down on how minors play their games not only uh, telling them not to focus on profits or attracting players and fans, but also telling them to uh, uh, to uh, to modify their own games and rules to, uh, to further reduce addiction, such as not to offer huge rewards for minor players. But I think the more ominous aspect in this meeting also comes on content restrictions. Basically, the companies were told to ban or censor anything the government deems to be promoting wrong values. Not just things that you would expect, such as violence and obscenity, but also very specific subjects, such as effeminate male beauty and gay love. So this is seen as another example of this party, this leadership increasingly intruding into people's private life. I think that's very worrisome because one of the main benefits of the economic reforms in the past few decades is uh, people gaining more personal freedoms in their private life. But now, of course, with this latest meeting, it seems this is another example of this uh, communist party uh, trying to reassert its dominance not only in this one industry, but also in the broader economy, but also in in every aspect of Chinese society, I think that is going to have wide-ranging and long-term implications, not only for uh, a financial analyst but also for many millions of ordinary Chinese citizens across the country. Allison,
0: Stephen Jang, well said. Thanks very much for your reporting invest headed by high-profile investor Kathy Wood has dramatically cut its exposure to China that's according to the Financial Times today. it comes after Beijing ordered a crackdown on a number of sectors of the economy. Claire Sebastian joins me live now. Claire, great to see you. You know, Kathy Wood is cutting her exposure, but she is quoted as saying she's not pessimistic about China in the long run because she believes China is a very entrepreneurial society and that she doesn't think the government wants to stop growth and progress at all. But isn't that essentially what China is doing with this crackdown?
2: Well, Alison, Kathy Wood, who, as you know, is very closely watched, someone who, who tends to to, to to pick the more disruptive stocks to, to invest in a, a darling of the sort of meme stock phenomenon, she uh, has said she's called this a reset. She said that they are cutting their holdings, as you said, dramatically, but they're looking more to companies that she said are currying favor with Beijing. Now, the trigger for Kathy Wood in doing this, uh, according to to, to comments uh, cited by the Financial Times, was the crackdown on the uh, private education sector that we saw from the government in July. At this point, she realized that she said that this was sort of social engineering and that Xi Jinping's quest for what he calls common prosperity, sort of a redistribution of wealth, became his prevailing concern. And because of that, she now wants to go into stocks that are are really sort of supporting that vision. Some of the ones named are the likes of Pinduodo, which is an agricultural platform linking farmers uh, with consumers. Uh, Also, JD Logistics, which is the logistics arm uh, of JD. Com. So she is shifting into those areas. But as you said, she is not giving up. She said, uh, we think they'll reconsider some of these regulations with time. We won't give up on China because they are so focused on innovation and so inherently entrepreneurial. But she now moves into this intense debate that is going on about whether this, this intense regulatory pressure from Beijing on a variety of different sectors is going to go away and whether that renders Chinese stocks a, a real investment prospect. So that's what Kathy
0: Wood is doing, and everybody knows she's a super successful investor. Are you hearing from other investors about what they're doing when it comes to China?
2: Well, look, this has been a debate, as I said, that has now been raging publicly. We've heard uh, from you know BlackRock this week. They had a huge success with the launch of their uh, fund in China, their investment fund. That was criticized, though, by George Soros, who called it a tragic mistake. He said it was now a problem for global democracies because uh, the, the money that is invested in this fund will help prop up President Xi's regime, he said, which is repressive at home and aggressive abroad. That was in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal. So he was criticizing BlackRock. Ray Dalio, another The billionaire investor, though, on the other side, said that he thinks China is an exciting opportunity, and that what we're seeing now with the quest for quote common prosperity is a sign of philanthropy that is something he didn't see in China when he first traveled there many years ago. So there's a lot of sort of concern around these stocks. We're seeing not only regulation in China, but 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 regulation in the U.S. around Chinese listing. It's it's coming from both sides. It's coming at a time when relations between the U.S. and China have been deteriorating. So this is a question that many investors. Investors uh, are, are, are asking, and some, like Kathy, would believe the regulation might die down. Others believe, perhaps not. Allison. Okay, Claire Sebastian, thanks so much for breaking all that down. A sharp warning
0: now from the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the federal government is likely to run out of cash by next month unless Congress takes action. Matt Egan is on the story and joins us live. Matt, great to see you. You wrote a great piece about this, breaking down what will happen if uh, there's no agreement uh, reached on a new debt limit. I mean, it can wreak havoc on everything from, you know, credit cards to uh, car loans. What's the likelihood that we're going to reach this uh, emergency point, though? Nancy Pelosi sounds pretty confident that a deal can be reached. Also, where on the calendar uh, do we run out of money?
3: Well, Alison, here we go again. Uh, Another debt ceiling fight is brewing in Washington, and it is looming as a key risk this fall. Now, we knew that the federal government was going to eventually run out of money because of the debt ceiling. Um, The Congressional Budget Office had previously said that this could be an issue sometime during the final three months of the year, probably in October or November. But Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is putting a finer point to it. In a new letter uh, to Congress that Yellen sent yesterday, um, she warned that this is coming up very soon. Let me read to you what she said. She said, based on our best and most recent information, the most likely outcome is that cash and extraordinary measures will be exhausted during the month of October. Now, Yellen had said she said that once those extraordinary measures are exhausted, the United States will be unable to fulfill its obligations for the first time in history. Now, this would be um, an epic disaster and a completely unforced one. Uh, to your point, uh, we would see stock markets tank. Uh, borrowing costs for the United States would go straight up. Uh, The Treasury rates would go up. And that's a big deal because uh, treasuries are the benchmark by which all other securities are measured. Uh, So this would be uh, very bad. And it's not just concern we're hearing from the Biden administration. I talked to Mark Zandi, the chief economist over at Moody's Analytics. Uh, He also was a former uh, economic advisor to Republican uh, John McCain. And here's what Zandi told me. He said it would be, quote, financial Armageddon It's complete craziness to even contemplate the idea of not paying our debt on time. Unfortunately, Allison, uh, we do live in crazy times, though. (laughs)
0: <laughs> and, and as you said, you know, this is not the first time that we see Congress run down the clock. And so I ask you again, are we sort of screaming fire in a theater here? Are we uh, you know, this is sort of the same old timetable that we're up against. Usually Congress comes to the rescue and comes to, you know, figures out a deal. Nancy Pelosi sounds pretty confident. If you are a gambling man, what's the likelihood we are going to reach, uh, you know, DEFCON 5 on this?
3: Well, Allison, the markets are not freaking out about this at all. Uh, We haven't really seen uh, any strong evidence of major concern about the debt ceiling yet. I mean, the S&P 500 hasn't even had a 5% pullback in more than 300 days. Um, And I think that a lot of investors and economists do expect that this is going to get done Probably closer to the last minute, as it always does, simply because um, not acting here would be way too disastrous. Uh, but the fact that markets haven't reacted here um, at all uh, doesn't necessarily you know, mean that this isn't all clear, because um, it could be that the markets uh, end up having to react as things get a little bit uh, dicier down the line. And that means that they could have to react that much more. Um, again, ultimately, I, I do think that uh, the, the, the Treasury Department, the federal government um, uh, and, and congressional leadership, they realize uh, that they don't they'd be basically playing with fire here. So at the end of the day, they're going to do everything they can uh, to make sure something gets done. But we do have to remember that, you know, this isn't happening in a vacuum. Uh, this debate uh, that we've had before is happening at a time when uh, the global pandemic is still raging, when the Delta variant is actually slowing the U.S. economy, as we showed, as we saw in the, uh, the August Jobs report. Um, and so, you know, one analyst I talked to has said that it's never a good time uh, to sort of play uh, chicken with America's creditworthiness. But he said this is, quote, a particularly childish time to have this debate because of all these other challenges we have going on, Allison.
0: Yeah, hello, pandemic, right? (laughs) Matt Egan, thanks so much. Big news out a a short time ago from the European Central Bank. It will dial back its bond purchases over the coming quarter, a step towards unwinding pandemic-era emergency aid. Anna Stewart is here. With more. okay. so if I was a fly on the wall at this meeting, I would say there's a push and a pull happening within the ECB, you know, much like what's probably happening at the Fed. We've got the risk of inflation versus the risk of covid slamming the brakes on the economic recovery. So the ECB taking action, but they're stopping short of calling this a taper.
4: Yeah, it's definitely a gradual move. The two key words, really, Alison, were uh, moderately lower. That is the moderately lower pace we're now expecting from the PET programme, the Pandemic Emergency uh, Purchase programme. And we don't know what moderately lower really means just yet. Currently, that pace has been €80 billion Euros a month, about $95 billion. Um, and we're not likely, actually, to find out what the moderately lower decrease will be until we get uh, publications from the ECB in the coming weeks. However, the starting gun has been fired here for the beginning of this tapering process, albeit gradually. And here is the reasoning why from the president of the ECB, Christine Lagarde.
1: The current increase in inflation is expected to be largely temporary and underlying price pressures are building up only slowly. The inflation outlook in our new staff projections has been revised slightly upwards, but in the medium term, Inflation is foreseen to remain well below our 2% target.
4: Well below that 2% target. That was one of the biggest concerns actually going into this meeting, as you suggested there. It was interesting. She was quite bullish about the look of the economic recovery in Europe. um, But she also hinted caution, saying that a lot of it will depend on the course of the pandemic. And, of course, a particular concern regarding the Delta
0: variant. Alison. Okay, Anna Stewart, thanks so much. Still to come on First Move, meme stock sell-off. Investors drop GameStop after a hype-free earnings call. And life-saving, life-saving laser tech. We're going to take a look at the laser that can prevent car crashes. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stock futures remain flat after new jobless claims fell last week to the lowest in almost 18 months. Yesterday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen warned the government could run out of money next month unless Congress raises the debt ceiling. Meanwhile, the Fed's Beige Book report says U.S. economic growth slowed over the summer. Joining me now, Brian Levitt. He's with Global Market. He's a global market strategist at Invesco. Great to see you, Brian.
5: Thank you. Good to be here.
0: So we are beginning to see some weakness enter uh, equities. Uh, the Dow and S&P fell for three straight sessions. And, you know, uh, it, when you see moves like this in September, we remember back that it is one of the seasonally weakest months of the year. Do you think the economy has peaked and, and that stocks are overvalued?
5: So, the economy is definitely slowing. Um, You know, equities are somewhat elevated on valuation from a historical perspective, but that tends to happen as you're a year and a half out of a recession because the market recovers before the economy and earnings recover. So, we're going through that process right now where the economy. you know, is, while it's slowing, is still going to be supportive of corporate earnings and, and companies will, are likely to grow into those multiples. We also have to remember that equities are trading at valuations where they are today in a very low interest rate environment. And and so equities continue to be the asset class of choice, even if valuations look a bit elevated right now.
0: All right. So the focus is on the Fed these days and, you know, its taper dilemma. And as I said, we are looking at this decelerating economy. So the question is, Will the Fed really take its foot off the stimulus gas or will it keep chugging along? I mean, if we get data like we did last week about uh, the labor market, which was a huge miss, do you see the Fed changing course any?
5: I don't think the Fed's going to change course from the perspective of they'll start to put in the plan To taper asset purchases as we move towards the end of the year or the beginning of next year and and maybe we can quibble a little bit about the timing of it but what I think is, is really important is that anyone that was extrapolating tapering to then mean interest rate hikes to then mean a flattening or an inversion of the yield curve to then mean a recession I think is wildly overstating what the Fed is likely to do and and so I think the way investors should think about this is while although tapering is going to go forward again we can quibble on the timing the the prospect of higher fed funds rate is well off in the future and if you believe like i do that business and market cycles don't die of old age they end when the federal reserve kills them with interest rate hikes then that suggests to me that's a long time off i believe we're still early in a cycle And when you're early in a cycle that favors credit over treasuries and that favors stocks over bonds
0: Okay, so clearly you've got an optimistic view of where we're headed with the market, but then politics plays in uh, to what's happening on Wall Street as well. I'm curious if you think that the reconciliation bill and potential tax changes, how much does that complicate your outlook?
5: So I would, I would view it as if you do see the type of spending come forward, it's a large number, but remember that, number, that money's gonna be spent over a multi-year period. If, if they are able to pass. Um, an additional spending bill then it will be paid for with higher taxes and those higher taxes. Do hit earlier than the spending would hit the economy and so you end up with something of a fiscal drag. At a time that's likely not ideal as the economy still dealing with the delta variant and and perhaps some slowdown in, in the service economy. I don't believe that that fiscal drag leads to recession. What it does do is it slows the economy down further and has implications for what happens in markets. In a slowdown, we would expect rates to not go up meaningfully. We would expect commodities to be under some pressure. Um, We would expect stocks to do well, but more growth-oriented parts of the market than the deeper value parts of the market that investors favored earlier this year.
0: How else should investors play this then as well um, with their portfolios? Well, look,
5: I, I think that investors should be looking for structurally advantaged businesses wherever they can find them. I know that we'll ultimately get through this Delta variant and we'll have another leg up in economic activity and maybe. The final stages of a of a deep value or really cyclical rally, but if you're looking out over a multi year period, you have to ask yourself if this is an economy, a global economy that moves to a new higher sustained level of growth, or or one that you know just reverts back to where we were, call it from 2011 through 2019. I would suggest it's the latter, and then. For my opinion, you're looking in that type of an environment for structurally advantaged businesses, companies that can grow in a relatively slow growth world, wherever you can find them, both in the United States and around the world.
0: Okay, Brian Levitt, global market strategist with Invesco. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks. And these are stories making headlines around the world. The Taliban are allowing roughly 200 people to leave Afghanistan on the first commercial flight out of Kabul since they seized power. Several Americans are expected to be on today's flight to Doha, Qatar. Let's get more now from CNN's Sam Kiley, who is in Doha. So what are you learning about this flight? Uh, can you tell me more about who w- was, on the f- was on the plane?
6: Well, the details of the passenger manifest are still likely to emerge, but we know from other broadcasters' material that uh, people heading for Canada and London are certainly on on the flight uh, and we know that uh, there may be there are some Americans we don't know how many Americans but this is a multinational flight of expatriates it doesn't seem that there are any Afghans on the flight Uh, it is according to the Qatari mediator there who's really been driving the whole process of not only getting the technical abilities to stand the airport up but also persuading the Taliban of the merits of allowing people to come and go freely from what is now their capital According to him, uh, this is a commercial flight, not an evacuation flight. It's effectively a Qatar Airways charter. There may be others going in. Four others landed from other nations, notably other Gulf nations, carrying aid, much needed aid, into Kabul. And I think that's part of the aid and trade uh, exchange that the Taliban are being encouraged to make in return for trying to moderate some of the worst aspects of their behavior. But some of that is already going wrong. Of course, we've recently seen pictures of journalists who've emerged from brief detention at the hands of the Taliban after covering demonstrations in Kabul bearing the marks of some vicious beatings with cables and other whips uh, which is definitely not the sort of trajectory that uh, particularly the Qataris have been asking from the Taliban and it's the Qataris really more than any other nation that have a line into the Taliban at least a, a communications Line. The extent to which they're being listened to is somewhat uh, open to question given the very hardline all-male government that has now emerged in Kabul.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the first priority of the Taliban doesn't seem to be, you know, a humani- kind of humanitarian mission or trying to prop up the, the economy. It seems to be trying to ban these protests.
6: Well, they're not only prioritizing uh, banning the protests, they're aware politically that these protests are potentially extremely threatening to them, given that the majority of Afghans are urban, uh, and it is in the urban urban concentrations that protests in Kabul and Herat and elsewhere have grown. It is in the urban areas where women have been empowered for so long, so it's likely that that would be an environment in which they face the greatest level of opposition but they also know that they're facing a, a, a humanitarian catastrophe which could also undermine their power base so they have to work very hard indeed in legitimizing themselves to some extent at any rate so that they can be the conduit through which international aid might flow but most aid actually in Afghanistan due to the previous years of catastrophic levels of government corruption has been through ngos multilaterally through the united nations and that's likely to continue so right now what they need in in humanitarian terms is more of a, a delivery systems more trucks going across the border more aircraft landing but a lot of that also comes with demands for more freedom and it is that area where there's going to be continued friction with the taliban
0: okay sam kiley live for us in doha thank you and you're watching first move the market open is next welcome back to first move i'm Allison kosik and that was the opening bell at the new york stock exchange looks like u.s stocks are opening flat after new data on jobless claims the number of americans who applied for first-time unemployment benefits hit a fresh pandemic low the weekly jobs have trended lower. The claims have trended lower since mid-July, despite the spike in Delta variant cases. Meantime, shares of Lululemon are surging after its second quarter results beat expectations. The athletic retailer also offers a stronger outlook for the next quarter. But Boston Beer is down after it pulled its earnings guidance amid a slowdown in sales of its hard seltzer brand. And meme favorite GameStop is also falling, even after the company said its loss narrowed in the second quarter. GameStop posted a net loss of $62 million for the quarter as sales jumped about 25 percent. Joining me now to talk about this is Michael Pachter. He is equity research analyst at Wedbush Securities. Great to see you.
7: Good morning, Allison. Thank you.
0: So, you know, GameStop posting this smaller loss than last year. It posted rising sales. Talk me through why the stock is tumbling.
7: Well, uh, those are fundamental uh, factors. And I don't think anyone's invested in the stock for fundamentals. So uh, institutional investors abandoned the stock a long time ago. Uh, the only people who care about fundamentals are the shorts. And there's, there remains a structural defect in the short position. Uh, and the Reddit Raiders have figured out how to exploit that. And they've been pretty smart about it. Uh, what's keeping the reddit raiders afloat is the promise of uh, this you know groundbreaking strategy that Ryan Cohen said he would unveil back in January and you know each quarter we have to wait another 3 months because it just hasn't been forthcoming so i think they're disappointed and the the longs have sold off the stock because they didn't get the strategy they expected this quarter a quarter ago and two quarters ago
0: so solve me this riddle fundamentals don't matter although you know, we're starting to see GameStop kind of look like a real company, even though the earnings call didn't provide an outlook. You know, we're seeing new names in the C-suite, people from from Amazon. We're seeing GameStop shift its business toward e-commerce, expanding its customer care operations. Help me square what's going on here.
7: Well, new names for sure, and, and they're very competent. Um, they're not really doing anything differently than the old management. And I'd say the the biggest difference is that the average age of the C-suite is about 15 years younger than the average age of the prior management. Um, I don't think that the old guys, you know, no pun intended, were were luddites. You know, I, I think the old guys were fine, but and they were the ones who cleaned up the balance sheet. They are the ones who who shifted the focus to e-commerce. I think Ryan Cohen is an impatient minority shareholder who. Uh, exploited, you know, rise in the stock and got people that were wearing were golden handcuffs to take off and become centimillionaires. Um, I don't think he's done anything differently than they were doing, with the possible exception of adding a distribution center in Reno. And I'm not exactly sure why that. Perhaps he's going to try to beat Amazon in deliveries to the Bay Area. But I don't really know what they're doing that's different. To me, it's business as usual. Um, I actually like this company, it's a good company, it's just fundamentally not worth more than 50 bucks. So they're doing nothing different. And if they ever tell us their strategy, they have to kill us. So you know, I think that we're gonna keep waiting three more months and hear nothing, and three more months and hear nothing. And I think the truth is, there is no strategy other than be like Amazon. So I think that's what they're doing. They hired a bunch of Amazon people, they're very competent. And I think they're going to try to be like Amazon. I'm going to remind you that Walmart tried to be like Amazon, too. And it took them about 20 years of emulation before they broke down and bought Jet. So maybe Ryan Cohen thinks he can do the same thing. But I just don't see it.
0: OK, I've got to ask you about China before we go, uh, because China is sure. laser focused on uh, social anything social related to tech uh, and anything that Beijing sees as being too profitable it's, it's really a target for China to crack down on that company. Talk with me about how investors should play this.
7: You know, it's the same thing in China that's going on here. It's, it's really that the people in power, at least in the prior administration, are exploiting a culture war. And so it's easy to target big tech because everybody feels exploited by big tech and to say they're, they're, they're you know sucking all the profits and sucking up all your time. Um, I have to say, personally, I don't cover any of the Chinese equities. I'm personally long Tencent, because I think the sell-off is overdone. That's a phenomenal company. Um, Investors have bid down U.S. companies that do business in gaming in China, particularly Activision, which is on our best ideas list. I love that stock. Um, That stock's trading about $25 below its $105 peak, and I think it's an excellent entry opportunity. They have everything lined up perfectly great management, great ip, exploiting different business models and the the landscape is changing for the better for them. So, you know, they're in a really great position to capitalize I would play activision.
0: Okay, Michael Pachter, equity research analyst at Wedbush Securities. Great getting your perspective today. Thank you. Thank you. From how they learn to what they play, the children of China are now subject to far-reaching government restrictions. It's a not-so-subtle effort by the central government to intervene in the private lives of families and potentially shape future generations. CNN's David Culver reports.
8: Sweeping changes to China's social order focused on the next generation. The all-powerful central government rolling out drastic measures over several weeks, from a crackdown on private tutoring to heavy restrictions placed on kids and gaming, all portrayed to help the masses.
5: A lot of those actions are designed to help ease the pressures, whether it's property prices or
8: schooling or gaming and so on. It resonates with some families like the Yangs in Shanghai. Dad Yecheng capturing picture after picture of his two teenage kids enthralled by their phones. Playing hours upon hours of endless games. The government now restricting the use of online video games to just three hours a week for kids. 8 to 9 p.m. on Friday weekends and holidays.
3: It's a good policy that we get a chance to
0: rebalance everything.
8: And it's coinciding with a massive crackdown on pricey after-school tutoring. Many venting concerns on Chinese social media. One post reading, I am very worried that this generation of children will become the victims of policy-oriented actions, but some supporting the government's efforts to restructure home life. This person writing, In the past few years, extracurricular training institutions have gone too far. If the country does not regulate them, these training institutions will only become more and more crazy. A rising middle class has struggled in recent years spending millions buying homes in desired school districts and paying private tutors to keep their kids academically competitive, with some complaining that wealthier families had an unfair advantage. As China marks 100 years since the founding of the Communist Party, General Secretary and President Xi Jinping is shifting focus back to its foundational party values, even calling for a redistribution of wealth to counter poverty. Some have labeled this as a new cultural revolution, harking back to the 60s and 70s when then-leader Mao Zedong led a movement to purify the party, as he put it, an obvious effort to reassert his control. It led to brutal crackdowns on free thought, mass imprisonments, and hundreds of thousands of people were killed.
5: General Secretary Xi is careful not to mobilize the masses to rise clearly against the power structure, as Mao did. But at the same time, however, many Chinese do feel like actually there are uh, resonance with the Cultural Revolution in certain respects.
8: There are striking similarities. Last year, the government banning the use of foreign textbooks in most schools, and more recently, limiting the role and influence of foreign teachers on some education platforms.
5: A lot of this is really about eliminating any potential risks uh, to the system.
8: And starting this new semester, Chinese students of all ages, from primary to graduate schools, will have to start learning from textbooks like these. The subject? Xi Jinping Thought, reinforced by the many photos of this country's increasingly powerful leader. For the Yang family, there are positives. I do feel the policy came in abruptly. But it seems like people accept it well. His kids turning to sports and physical activities again. Less phone time and fewer academic pressures in exchange for more family time. But beneath the easing of some daily pressures, a deeper indoctrination may be underway aimed at keeping anything the party disapproves of firmly in its place. Now, many of these policies that we are seeing roll out here in China are rooted in the new three-child policy, and that is a government push to encourage families to have more children. Now, that's not just about trying to increase the population. It is also heavily rooted in maintaining and increasing prosperity, which in turn translates into social stability here. David Culver, CNN, Shanghai.
0: North Korea marked its 73rd anniversary with a military parade in the middle of the night. Kim Jong-un greeted people and waved to the crowd, but local media doesn't say he gave a speech. The parade featured planes, marches, and huge crowds, but as far as the videos show, no new missiles. After the break, we hit the brakes. Technology that promises to save lives on the road unveiled at the International Mobility Show. We'll explain all in two and a half minutes. Welcome back. All this week, we've covered new innovations at the IAA Mobility Show in Germany. One of the most dramatic demonstrations we've seen comes from Luminar Technologies. It's showcasing this laser collision avoidance system called LiDAR, saying it can consistently stop a car from crashing into what's in front of it. Intel's Mobileye is using LiDAR technology in this self-driving robo-taxi. It has three special sensors built into the roof, allowing the vehicle to navigate traffic without a driver. Austin Russell is the CEO of Luminar, and he joins me live. Great to see you.
9: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's certainly an exciting show.
0: It sounds that way. First, let's walk through what LiDAR, how LIDAR works for, for, for those who are watching who don't understand.
9: Yeah, yeah. So, so LIDAR stands for Light Detection and Ranging. It uh, sends out laser pulses into the environment, measures the exact distance for what it takes to hit an object and come back, and you know how far it is. And then you do these millions of times, and you can collect this LIDAR image that allows you to understand exactly where everything is so that the car can autonomously navigate safely, while at the same time, you know, when, when, you, when you are driving a vehicle, to be able to enable better collision avoidance, to be able to actually start saving lives out on the road that are caused by accidents, which... 95% of accidents out there are caused by human error, you know, leading to 1.5 million lives lost out on the road. So for the first time here at IAA, we're actually debuting uh, not only our, our uh, LiDAR system with Iris, but also this uh, what we're calling proactive safety software in this full stack approach that allows it, this a, a new, new next generation vehicles to actually be able to prevent you from hitting things and from you, from whether whether it's people, cars, you know, whatever objects may lie ahead and to be able to hopefully save a lot of lives.
0: But we've seen autonomous uh, cars on the road, and we have heard of accidents, even with those autonomous vehicles. So now, uh, you know, as they become more more widely adopted, responsibility for those accidents could be shifted away from drivers and toward those who design, manufacture uh, the vehicles. And there's gonna be a need to sort out who's responsible. How do you sort of um, deal with the, the liability factor of autonomous vehicles as this becomes broadened out?
9: Yeah. Well, importantly, those the cars certainly weren't using Luminar. You know, we pride ourselves on, on extreme levels of safety and, you know, the the importance of this. You know, I, I think there's also a very important understanding between uh, right now the systems that people try and develop or call self-driving are really assisted driving systems that are out there. And, and there's a very important distinction where the driver has to be constantly paying attention, ready to take over the wheel at any given moment whenever the vehicle makes a mistake, you know. So, the, the real distinction here is that, and the opportunity is, instead, instead of having a car that, that, that fails constantly, that relies on the human to take over, when you're driving, it should take over when it senses that you're otherwise going into accident. You should have a much more focused approach and the technology that can enable that. And and that's what makes all the difference. That's, that's what we're doing here. On top of that, too, when it does come to autonomous driving and self-driving, that's what people can finally enable with this. So this is what we're going into production with, with automakers, you know, r- ranging, uh, you know, Volvo has been public about announcing, uh, for example, the integration to SAIC, the largest automaker in China, to, you know, Daimler trucks and uh, other, other kinds of uh, major OEMs. But at the same time, um, you know, we're really excited to see this out on the roads. And um, as you mentioned, uh, Intel and Mobileye just launched their vehicle um, you know, just, just the other day here, uh, powered by, by Luminar as well. So it's um, certainly an exciting time for this.
0: Okay, let's talk Tesla for a moment. Elon Musk, uh, Tesla's CEO, has been critical of the technology that you have, uh, saying LIDAR is a fool's errand and that anyone relying on LIDAR is doomed. Yet, is it true that he has a contract to use sensors from Luminar Technologies for testing and development? So does that mean there's a partnership brewing between Luminar and Tesla?
9: Yeah, so I, I think I uh, can't confirm or deny things from a customer confidentiality perspective. But, uh, but, but, but that said... Um, listen, there, we're we're working with um, what eight of the top ten uh, you know major automakers now for to be able to start integrating for test and development, and ultimately uh, with the, with the goal towards series production. Um, you know that that's really the focus of being able to see this technology through. We're already starting to convert those into true production wins, really the first of its kind in the industry. And on top of that, now seeing some automakers start sticking a claim like Volvo out there, saying, "Hey, not only is this a, a key technology that should be optional on high end vehicles." But safety is critical. Safety should be standard. And uh, just, just like seat belts or airbags, you know, there's no op- seatbelt option upgrade on your car. It's something that, that's standard with every vehicle. And, and the way that we see it is that LiDAR and software, specifically proactive safety software with us, is going to be no different. That's the goal. That's what we're planning for. And that's what we're executing to. It's only accelerating here at IAA.
0: OK, well, after Luminar listed on the NASDAQ, you became the world's youngest self-made billionaire at 25 years old. In fact, you booted Kylie Jenner off of the list. How do you feel and what's the top advice you'd give your younger self, and I say younger than 17 because at 17 you developed this idea for Luminar?
9: Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Well, I, I already hit my quarter-life crisis, so, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a process. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, so I, I think, uh, you know, I'd say the biggest thing is just stay focused. You know, there's, there's so much noise. There's a lot of other stuff. Stick to the vision that you had. You know, I think it was very clear. There's, there's always a lot of naysayers and a lot of other folks, you know, that, that, that are out there when it comes to these kinds of technologies. And, you know, you, like when you do the analysis, when you know your stuff cold, you got to stick to the path, and and obviously, you know, be careful not to drink too much Kool-Aid along the way. But but when it comes down to it, seeing through this vision, you know, and actually partnering directly with automakers to see this technology through is something that nobody thought was possible. But at the same time, what we we managed to pull it off, and uh, with that, we got, got a lot ahead. But I'd say, yeah, just continue to stay focused. Um, it's always the intersection of of technology, drive, passion, and execution that can change the world. And uh, excited to be doing
0: that. All right. Austin Russell, CEO of Illuminar Technologies, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.
9: Thanks for having me. You got you. it.
0: Still ahead, killed for food. How precious and protected wildlife in Kenya is under threat because of the impact of the pandemic. The coronavirus pandemic has brought Kenya's tourism industry to a halt, and the country's wildlife is paying a hefty price. The economic fallout is so severe, protected wildlife is being killed for food. CNN's Scott McLean has details.
10: The savanna of southern Kenya is a tough place to survive. It's hot, dry, and there's the constant threat of predators planning their next meal. Lions, leopards, and lately, a lot of humans, too.
2: It's currently, the situation is uh, worse because uh, most people have lost their jobs and now they are resorting to poaching.
10: Twice a day, Donart Mwakio and his team of rangers from the sprawling Taita Hills Wildlife Sanctuary go hunting for poachers. On this day, they find a crudely butchered giraffe carcass killed by poachers in the last two weeks. It weighs about one ton. Down the dirt road, the footprints are much fresher. They lead to a homemade snare fashioned from the electric fence meant to keep poachers out. They find two more traps, the last one attached to the hoof of an eland, the largest antelope on earth. New figures from the Kenya Wildlife Service show that seizures of bushmeat, mostly antelope, zebras and dick-dicks, are on pace to hit a record high.
7: The problem is, is not looking very good at the moment. Poverty is something that, was, that came through. Uh, with the COVID, with COVID, because jobs were lost. People are desperate. People are desperate, yes.
0: They sit in the village. Morning to evening, they don't have a cent. They don't have food. Willie
10: Mwadilo is the general manager of Taita Hills and the two hotels inside the sanctuary that, pre-pandemic, were almost always near capacity. But in the past 18 months, he says they've scarcely topped 20%. People are asking you for jobs? Yes. So many people. So many people. You don't have jobs to give them?
6: I don't have jobs to give them.
10: In the village next to the sanctuary, poverty is the rule, not the exception. Wildlife is the most precious resource, but without tourism, animals are worth a lot more dead. This village was struggling even before the pandemic. Only some of the houses are hooked up to electricity. Nobody has indoor plumbing and the pandemic has made life just that much harder. People here say they don't have enough to eat and so it's pretty hard to blame them for poaching. Ibrahim Chombo takes any odd job he can to earn the seven dollars a day that ensures his wife and two small kids have enough to eat. But since the pandemic took hold, his kids eat just once a day. They've become weak because there's nothing to eat. They don't complain. They know when their parents get money, they will get to eat. He says. Chombo says he doesn't poach bush meat, but like many, he buys it. He can't afford beef. It's at least four times the price. Before corona, there were so many customers. The local butcher works on commission. Pre-pandemic, his display case would be filled with 20 or 25 kilograms of beef. Now, there's just one. Almost no one can afford it. Ask around and bushmeat is not hard to find. This man, who agreed to speak with us anonymously, says he's the middleman who buys the meat from poachers and takes it to town to resell at a small profit. I had to take my
4: care of my family, so I have to risk
0: to go back to the bush.
10: He's well aware of the risk, jail time, or a fine he could never afford if he was caught. So what's the lesson in all this?
4: We need employment.
10: If you could feed your family some other way, you wouldn't do this?
7: Yeah, I cannot do that. The root of the problem is we now must look for alternatives. First, we must educate the people to tell them the problem of why bushmeat is not the alternative.
10: But that, perhaps, is a tough sell, considering tourism has all but dried up.
7: It has, but uh, recent numbers are beginning to show that it's beginning
10: to pick up. Glimmer of light that cannot come soon enough. Scott McLean, CNN, Savo, Kenya.
0: Thanks for watching. I'm Allison Kosick. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next.